Well, good morning, good morning, and welcome to the 3CR Gardening Show. My name is A.B. Bishop, and I'm standing in for Pam Vardy for the next two weeks. Hopefully this morning I'm reaching you loud and clear after my slight sound debacle last week um, on the show, which I apologise for. Uh, Now, many of us are into growing our own veggies, herbs and fruits, sometimes with varying degrees of success, and we don't always know why things have worked for us one year and not the next. And as much as gardening is considered an art, there's also a really strong scientific element to it as well. Now, one man who's certainly dedicated his life to the science behind growing plants is Angus Stewart. And while many of us know Angus as being one of Australia's experts on native plants, something people might not know is that he is also an agricultural scientist and started his career with the aim of developing more sustainable farming practices. Consequently, he's a bit of a dab hand when it comes to growing food plants, so much so that he's written a book on the topic that's just been, just been released, titled Grow Your Own, How to Be an Urban Farmer. In it, Angus and his co-author Simon Leake have pulled apart the science behind growing produce in suburbia. And later on in the show, we'll be chatting with Angus about the book. But right now, I'm with two of the most appropriate people who could be joining the discussion with Angus later on, and that is our very own garlic guru, Penny Woodward, and the ornamentable queen, Karen Sutherland from Edible Eden Design. Welcome, guys. Morning, Ab. You wanted to know what that was, didn't you? Ornamentable. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> bit of ornament, a bit of edible. Very early. You're right it's into that. Early talk. It's yeah. a special language. Yes. And, and um, how's everything going with you guys? Fantastic. This morning, thank you. Yeah, good. It was so nice to get up into a sunny morning with the birds singing and, you know, be actually awake instead of sort of staggering out the door. Because <laughs> um, I have to get up at 5.30 to get here in time. Oh, so, you yeah, know, yeah. when it's light at 5.30, I actually really enjoy it's it. It's so nice, The birds are waking me up at 5.30. Yeah. I've got to look at the time and think, what time is it? Oh, 5.30. And off yes. they're, tw- they're twer- twerping. Yeah, what birds? Twittering. Twittering. What birds do you hear first? Actually, I think it's the uh, blackbirds yeah, that are making too. those noise at okay. the moment. Mm. Yeah, kookaburras for me in the bush. Oh, kookaburras first and last. Yeah, they wake get, you up. We <laughs> get kookaburras and a few magpies, but it, it still tends to be the blackbirds Okay, you hear first. Yeah, they're very melodic, aren't they, yeah. actually? And sometimes the wattlebirds. Oh, so yes. They they're can be. A bit less melodic. They hear a bit of noise, <laughs> but yes. But still, it's all part of it, isn't it? But it it's. Um, I was chatting with um, uh, a chap who works at the Cranbourne Botanic Gardens and he and his wife have a um, habitat garden at their own home. And um, one day they, they sat down and in the evening and um, listened to all the birds going to bed, basically, and worked out which one um, was the last one to call out. So I thought that was a, a really mm, lovely thing to mm. do. And I, and I think, you know, I've been doing a bit of research into, um, you know, birds in Australian gardens and, you know, even around in the cities and whatnot. And, of course, there's such a huge decline. Mm, um, and, mm. um, you know, more and more we're seeing, um, well, I should I say less and less we're actually seeing all these small birds in, in suburbia. Mm, and and it's, it's really sad. And um, I'm, I'm trying to address that. I'm writing a book on habitat gardens and, and in it I've, I've got some, you know, ideas for um, bringing those birds back into spaces, coming at it from a food web perspective that, you know, we need to um, be planting these grasses and things which attract the insects. And then, of course, all those dense shrubby plants with, um, you know, thorns and little berries the and some the pricklies. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and just just that mm. real range. And you know, when when we drive around suburbia at the moment, 
Um, I know, you know it's really difficult for councils because they, you know, they've got those maintenance programs and they want to put in plants that don't require that, you know, continuous mm-hmm. maintenance. And I, I totally get that. But, you know, there's a lot of um, sort of... Um, upper story and then um, just grasses and then nothing in between and it really mm. is those in-between bits that um, that the small birds need um, mm. rather mm. than just, um, you know, they, of course they go down to the grasses for their food but, and mm. they go up to the to the higher plants for mm. um, safety and protection but they, they really, you know, they breed in those dense shrubs, that mid-layer shrubs so it um, would be it's, good to see a bit of that across It's the- interesting too just thinking about the amount of insects around um, when I visit my sister and her family in Switzerland they're on the edge of a farming, they're on a very small village but on the edge of that village right onto farmland and there's been a whole lot of changes over the years as we've visited Switzerland and one of the changes has been that they now, uh, the government now pays farmers to keep their wildflowers on the on the roadsides and between their crops and little little bands of wildflowers everywhere to increase biodiversity and they only get paid if they don't cut you know cut the grass so to speak for their hay or, or cut it down um, after a certain time which is when all the seeds have have occurred so that they'll continue on the wildflowers and the grasses and there are so many bugs there you always mm. think about the bugs and I, I just thought about the link to that because they've got much better biodiversity over there now. I think like they, I mean, there's birds everywhere, They're there's bugs it. everywhere. Yep. And there was a study I heard about. Um, there was an uh, entomolo- entomologist from the uh, Melbourne Museum that I heard on the radio not long ago, and he was talking about a study in I think it was Germany, a, a citizen scientist study over 27 years that the over the last 27 years or 25 years, that's about 70% of the insect biomass has decreased. Oh, the insect biomass has decreased by about yeah, that amount. it was mm. Germany. Mm. West Germany, thank you, yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's just shocking. And that would be another reason why birds don't have as much to feed on. Of course. Well, that's, yeah. that's what I was going to say is you've got to stop the use of pesticides. Oh, that, so, to me that's just mm, a no-brainer, mm, you well, know. Well, yeah, but it, you've got to keep saying it because it's not a no-brainer to a mm. lot of oh, I know, and it's really sad. That's and we sad. also have an aversion to bugs, it, it's mm, just, it doesn't mm, matter yeah, where mm. you go. Rather than having that aversion, I think I'm trying to, you know, even... See it as a healthy thing. And, yeah. and also yeah. f- see it as fascinating, you know. I mm. mean, because when, you know, you move a pile of logs or something and there's just, you know, a bunch of slaters and other millipedes and mm. all sorts of things. Learn to and live with them. Yeah, mm. your first thought is, yikes. Mm. But, you know, really it should be like, oh, fantastic. You know, obviously got a healthy ecosystem going on mm. here. And that's the thing in Switzerland. So you've got all these bugs, but then the farms are um, pretty much all IPM at least or Mm -hmm. integrated pest Mm -hmm. management or otherwise they're organic. And there's little signs everywhere explaining which farms are which. So that it it has been a total – I think they've obviously realised as things have been dying out or, hang on, we have to put some things back into the environment again. And they're now starting to – um, allow their rivers to become more natural. To, there's a special study on a particular river near them that they took me to, sh- took to show me, and there was big signs and lo- lots of interpretive signage there about bringing back the beavers to that to that river. So allowing them to make a mess, to yeah. cut some trees down with their teeth to make make um, beaver nests and things like that. So they're they're realising they have to bring this back to their to countryside. Yeah, and I guess um, have you heard the story of the Yellowstone National Park? No. Oh, we're, well, the grey wolves, which were the apex predator in the Yellowstone National Park, they were hunted pretty much completely out of the park in the late uh, late 20s, I think it was. And um, after that, there was a very gradual decline of Yellowstone and, um, and, you know, the elk were rising in numbers and the beavers were disappearing and all this sort of thing. And um, at one point, the 
ecologists sort of all got together and they thought, oh, you know, maybe the this apex predator, the grey wolf, had something to do with it. So they um, had a breeding program. Um, they banned hunting of wolves in the park. They brought wolves back in. As their numbers increased, um, the elk population, although it initially decreased, decreased which was terrific it sort of slowly the number slowly built up again but because the wolves were hunting them they needed to move around a lot so they weren't grazing on the trees the whole time so Mm -hmm. all these willow and aspen and whatever were able to regenerate Um, because they could regenerate all the little birds were coming back and you know the bears and everything that were foraging on these things their root systems of the um, the trees also improved so therefore that you know, started stabilising the riverbanks. Then the beavers came back because, first of all, the riverbanks were stabilised and the trees were there, so they could use that. And once the beavers started moving in and it slowed the flow of the river and allowed all these habitat areas for fish and other critters to come and then the ducks came back. So, you know, simply (laughs) it was this incredible cascading effect Mm. um, simply from bringing the grey wolf back. And I just, I get excited. It's a real fairy tale. It is a a total fairy tale and um, you can... For me, that's exciting because I think, wow, you know, if you can do it on such a large scale, imagine what we could do. I mean, Mm. there's, you know, however many millions of homes with gardens around Australia. Mm -hmm. If if every garden just put in a small habitat area, imagine, you know, Mm. the possibilities there for for bringing nature back into into suburbia. Mm. And I think that's one of the things, and it's something that I've been doing for years now, is integrating the edible garden with the habitat garden. So that, you know, you've you've, right around the outside of my place, it's all planted with Indigenous and Mm. native trees, Mm. and they're just there to provide habitat. Um, And... Sometimes it's too shady and sometimes mm. I wish I had a bit more room to plant <laughs> something. Yep. I ended up planting my tomatoes in with my broad beans because I didn't have a garden bed to put them into. Yeah. But, you know, it's um, I, that area is really important. And I had a wattle tree that was actually in the neighbour's place and they, it was leaning over and they said, well, you know, do you want us to cut it down? And I said... Well, it'd be sort of nice because it's creating so much shade, but no, I don't want you to because I'm constantly seeing the little birds in this tree mm-hmm. and um, it, it did actually fall over the next winter and, and we haven't had as many little birds. So mm-hmm. um, I'm mad, madly replanting to replace that. But And the other thing that you have to think about is if you do have to cut something down is to not completely cut it down and remove it, but leave the trunks so that you get the hollows, so that you get room for insects to be under the bark and absolutely and all that sort of thing so you know you leave as much there as possible yeah and even if you can i mean it's obviously not practical in all gardens certainly it is in ours you know if you leave a couple of those rotting logs on the ground mm. again that's you know a bit of habitat for some lizards as you say the insects move in and with the insects the birds etc mm. etc you see tree surgeons do that when you're driving around you do see when something's being cut or even on a, just a bit of a a larger, not a, me- a bit beyond a median strip, say, you'll see logs carefully placed or you know, left on the ground. You can see mm. where there's been tree work mm. and they've left them. So, you know, then a lot a lot of times I find um, maybe because um, there's so many trained boroculturalists in Melbourne, but they seem to be always at the, at the cutting edge. That's a bit of a pun there, but they seem to be on the, um, you know, at, at the forefront of, of modern 
information and so yeah you, mm. do, you do see that don't yeah, you? Yeah it is spreading and a lot of count- I think we we are actually quite lucky in Australia with our councils because you know they do use a lot of native plants and they are as you say mm. you know into habitats and uh, I know Mossman Council is one council that has a um, what they call a stag tree program where on their council owned land if a tree is dangerous and needs it to come down they just you know, reduce the branches to a certain point so that they're safe, but, you know, the tree remains in place. Mm. And um, I recently learned about a a program that the Royal Botanic Gardens in Sydney is running called... um, hollows for homes and they're you know trying to get people around the country to um, note the different hollows that they see in trees in different areas so that they can get a record of you know basically what's out there I think that's a a good starting point for Mm. seeing what's there and then hopefully you know in time it'll increase rather than Mm, decrease mm. but you know they also give advice on um, you know how to basically as you say not chop down the whole tree but you know leave it safely up there so that there are still those hollows available mm. so I think all these things make a make a big difference mm, don't they mm, I mean mm. it, we kind of it's it's on on a good level it's fantastic because we don't actually have to do a lot you know I mean if you plant planting a few um, indigenous plants the critters are going to come you know, mm. so it's yeah it's it's it would be i always think it'd be lovely if council if more councils could do what i saw in um port augusta um inner inner port augusta um where john Zwar was what the um, head of horticulture at that time this is quite a long time ago so it's a very um arid area i was over because i'm interested in the i was involved with the or involved as a member of the Friends of the Port Augusta Arid Lands Botanic Garden. But what they did there to kind of green up and and, uh, cool down the inner city was that they planted, you know, maybe three times as many street trees. So you had this really shady canopy shading out the the, um, shops. And I was looking at it thinking, oh, this would never take off in Melbourne. The shops wouldn't like having total coverage but imagine if you had three street t- trees for every nature strip i know the councils are probably moaning in the background if they're listening to this <laughs> or the council workers thinking oh no that's a huge <laughs> thing but wouldn't it be fantastic because you'd actually have a mini forest yeah. along mm. st- along streets yeah. and mm. they had so many at the at the time they had a lot of bottle brushes and a lot of um, native frangipanis and they were just glorious together as as uh, as a little canopy that actually did touch so, yeah, mm. that would be nice if that took off. Absolutely. And, I mean, <laughs> even, you know, planting trees closer together rather than further apart, mm. you know, research is showing now that, you know, their, their roots join up, that, that mm-hmm. um, mycorrhizal fungi, you know, helps connect them. And these trees actually help each other. So if one tree... They're even in conversation with each other. Mm. Absolutely. Mm. They're having conversations. They're saying, hey, hey, I'm getting attacked by pests over here. Can, you know, you better put some um, pest control methods into your own tree. And, you know, and if they become sick or injured, other trees actually pump carbohydrates into these trees to, to look after them. So by, by planting more trees, mm. I, I reckon um, we'll be able to reduce our pest control methods. Really helping them. Yeah, mm. yeah. Mm. Now, I suppose we should get to some community announcements. So, Karen, would you like to, oh, you've oh, got oh. today's ones. <clears throat> oh, right. <laughs> uh, so the, I'll beg your pardon. No, excuse me, just a moment, AB. Which oh, there's two. Beg your pardon. I was going to start on the ones that weren't crossed out. <laughs> so the at Mount Waverley Community Centre, we have the African Violet Group, African Violets and Jesneriads show, and that is going to be at as I said, the Mount Waverley Community Centre at Miller Crescent on the corner of Stevenson's Road. Today it's from 11 a.m. to 3:30 p.m. So you've got time to get there. Entry only five dollars. 
at the show you'll find show plants so you know best examples of those plants there'll be plants for sale equipment for sale advice demonstration demonstrations and other crafts and you can see the full schedule at w's early club because it's the early morning african violet group club and the Iris Society of Australia in the Victorian the Victorian region is having a show at the Jean McKendry Neighbourhood Centre, 91 to 111 Melrose Street, North Melbourne. And the doors open at 8pm. That is not today. That is on Tuesday. I beg your pardon. Tuesday the 21st. So... Beg your pardon. Sorry. Oh, I think you've got some more in your pile there. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm um, sorry. Oh, beg your pardon. Okay, Open Gardens Victoria. Dear me, I need to drink more tea. That's <laughs> <laughs> coffee for Karen when she comes in. Brain lapse. Sorry, <laughs> sorry, everybody. Sorry, gardeners. So, Open Gardens. There's um, uh, the heading here is modernist and unconventional. So, there's a couple of Hawthorne Gardens opening this weekend. So, if you missed these yesterday, there's a garden at Kinkora. And also uh, at, at, at 57 Kinkora Road, designed by Andrew Laidlaw. So we would have possibly heard him on the radio yesterday talking about the Peace Garden. So people, um, radio, keen radio listeners may have heard him speaking about that yesterday. And as we know, he's an amazing designer. So this would be a garden to see. So it's a property built in 1877, set on a double block, renovated 12 years ago, um, composed of distinctly different areas or garden rooms connected by winding cement stone paths and the garden is described as modernist uh, using Stilitzia, um, Californian buckeye or chestnut underplanted with mondo grass. <clears throat> the entrance is via a wild garden with an ephemeral creek bed with bot- Queensland bottle trees which have been very popular in the last few years palms, Beshnori, no, I never had to pronounce his name, <laughs> Besh, oh, please help me, Beshnorias. I don't know. No. They're really unusual, um, how would I describe them? A little bit like a Dorianthus, except the foliage is lower and mm-hmm. smaller mm-hmm. and the flowers are bright pink and, oh, and yeah. purples and things like that. So they're quite unusual. Uh, Smith and Gordon growers grow two species of them like for at the moment like those two species elude me but they would have bought them from there most likely mexican sedum so this this is something really to see also there are linden trees which you don't see very often mm. in melbourne so tilia cordata lovely to see slow growing in melbourne because they need so much moisture and they like the cool weather there's magnificent ones down in tasmania i have to say in the old part of town um, english elm so this is a big garden uh, several sculptures and an orchard, herb garden, beehives, a uh, white wisteria pergola, which may be just lingering with a few flowers, who knows, a woodland area and even old stables. And a five-minute walk to the east is – oh, I beg your pardon. We have Kinkora. Yeah, there's two open gardens. In, in Kinkora, in Kinkora Road. Yeah. I'm really quite confused. Yeah. Right. <laughs> So I'll just uh, sorry, AB. Yeah, no, that's fine. And this is I couldn't um, work out what was going yeah, on. Yeah, no, there's, there's a couple of couple of gardens in Hawthorne. There's one at Big fifteen apologies. to seventeen Kinkora right. Road, and there's one at fifty seven Kinkora Road. That really confused um, me. Sorry, my open garden friends are going to be very unhappy with me. Well, I, I didn't, obviously <laughs> didn't explain it well enough to you. Um, so I didn't read it. I was both, really naughty. <laughs> both of those are open from ten to four thirty. 
um, and entry is $8, um, children under 18 free and students are five. And if you want more information on those ones, you can go to opengardensvictoria.org.au. And you so might find more clear information you might, there. Yeah. <laughs> You read that very nicely. <laughs> uh, there's also a private open garden on the 19th of November, which is today, uh, or it was open yesterday too, but from 10am to 4pm. And it, this garden showcases what can be achieved on a sloping block, which is never easy. Uh, lots of English box hedging. I'm wondering whether they're to help set the levels. Japanese maples, conifers, perennials, topiary gardens, a vegetable and herb garden, a fish pond. It's this gardener's first garden, which was a paddock when they bought the house. She hand dug the whole garden and all the rock work. That's like a, that's yeah, a, a lot, lot of work. work. <laughs> <laughs> she she may be just sitting down when you walk in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is a, although there's no wheelchair access, so it is an adventurous garden. Lots of old fashioned roses and a very very colourful garden. This is at sixty three Ferndale Road in Upper Ferntree Gully, so that explains the slope. And the garden is called Garden View, so I'm thinking you might get a view as well. And uh, the gardener's name is Di. Merely, 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 merely. So from 10 till 4, you can head out to 63 Ferndale Road, up at Ferntree Gully, and the entrance there is $5 per person. Beautiful. Okay. I haven't had much Onward time to upward. read this either. Um, <laughs> it has to be better than mine. Really. <laughs> you've actually highlighted two here, but one of them's already happened, so I'll just talk about the other one. So on Tuesday, the 21st of November, there's a talk and book launch. Um, so Richard Allen it will be talking about his book, More Great Properties of Country Victoria. And um, it's on Tuesday the 21st of November. It start, it's um, You can start by uh, doing a tour of the Burnley Gardens. So it's being held at, held at the Burnley Gardens. The tour starts at 5 o'clock. There's light refreshments at 6 o'clock and then at 6.30 they've got the official book launch followed by an illustrated talk. Um, so it's at the main hall, um, Burn- University of Melbourne, Burnley Campus, 500 Yarra Boulevard, Richmond. Uh, the entry price is $20 or if you're a friend of the gardens, it's 15 and students is 10 And you can book um, via try booking at opengardensvictoria.org.au. So the same, oh, was, that, was that actually the Friends of Gardens or Friends of Open Gardens Victoria? Uh, uh, friends of Open Gardens Victoria. Oh, so it must 15. be one of their Yeah, um, it's functions. one of their events, mm, but they're mm, using, they're using mm. the... Um, so I, that it's his books are fabulous, so I think that would be a really exciting one to go to. Who is that again, Penny? It's uh, Richard Allen, mm. and mm-hmm. he's re- writing about more great properties of country Victoria, and mm. he's had an earlier book on properties of, and stunning photography by Kimball Baker, who always does a wonderful job. So, yeah, so I uh, I can't see apart from getting onto from going to the website. There's no other contact number for that. Um, the other one is Design Files Open House uh, with uh, Philip Withers Landscape Design Garden. So that's from the 23rd to the 26th of November. Uh, for the first time, the Design Files open um, and they'll bring to life the award-winning um, garden from the Flower Garden Show, a custom-designed mm. courtyard built from scratch by award-winning local landscape designer Philip Withers. Um, and they seem to be running a speakers series. So for the first time, a program of casual speaker events will be hosted at the Open House. So it's 23rd to the 26th of November, Collingwood Arts Precinct, 35 Johnson Street, Collingwood, between Wellington and Smith Streets. 
Uh, it's wheelchair family and pet friendly. So they're recreating that garden. I think so. It's it's wow. a bit hard to tell from what I've I actually got think here. Philip has just done a new design okay. for for this right. particular garden. Yep. But it's not yep. in a it's not in a in a house. No, it's a, it's in a, a well, yeah, it's a house and a, a new property in Collingwood. Yeah. Oh, okay. Mm. A courtyard That's garden, what I understand. right? Yeah, yeah. And so they're yeah. running, running kind of a mini garden festival because okay. the garden's yeah. spectacular, they, obviously. Well, they usually just focus on the house and the interior of the house, but they're, mm. they're also focusing the, on the garden. Mm. The garden Very interesting. Well. Yeah. yeah. Great. You done, Penny? Okay, I am. Yep, beautiful. All right. Well, um, as I mentioned earlier, um, Angus has written a new book with um, his uh, friend Simon Leake. And they will be in Melbourne this week to um, to um, talk about the book. And uh, one of the events is at um, a Curly Whiskers restaurant in Brighton. And it's kind of an in-conversation and I'll actually be hosting that night. So um, both Angus and Simon will be there. We'll be chatting with them about the book and the sustainability issues. And, you know, everyone will get a chance to um, have, a, have a bit of a chat with them. And um, so that's this Friday coming, November the 24th at 6.30 for a 6.45 p.m. start. Curly Whiskers Restaurant. Uh, there's a three-course menu, which is $50 for the meat option and 45 for the vegetarian option. And um, if you want to book for that event, um, the address is www.trybooking.com forward slash S for Sally, Z, X, G. Um, there are a couple of um, fantastic open gardens in Mount Eliza on um, Saturday the 25th and Sunday the 26th. Um, two very different gardens, a formal garden of a hedged garden rooms at Summer's Lease and a relaxed English-style garden at Nithsdale. Um, Summer's Lease is an elegant and timeless garden designed by Andrew Stark. The garden has a relaxed formal style with garden rooms that make maximum use of space and are defined by layered hedging with variation in colour and leaf form. And garden designer Andrew will be at Summer Lease to chat with the visitors all weekend. And then an easy 500 metre stroll away is Nithsdale, which is an enchanting English style garden bordered by an 80 year old hedge. Set on one acre, it has free-flowing garden beds with expanses of green lawn and wide garden beds brimming with colourful perennials and bulbs, which the owners enjoy picking and bringing into their home. And Nithsdale is opening for the Global Gardens of Peace, an Australian charity founded by Moira Kelly AO in 2013. The aim of Global Gardens of Peace is to, to design and deliver living landscapes as a foundation to support vulnerable communities around the world. So these two gardens, um, Summer's Lease is at 40 to 42 Rossadale Crescent, Mount Eliza. And Nithsdale is at 34 Rannock Avenue. So that's R-A-N-N-O-C-H Avenue in Mount Eliza. Uh, so that's next weekend, both Saturday and Sunday from 10 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. And entry is $8, children under 18 free, students are $5. Uh, for more information, you go to opengardensvictoria.org.au. And we do have one double pass to give away for each garden. Um, so if you would like um, to go along, you can just give Jan a call now on 94190155. And I'll just say if you have received or if you have won a, um, a double pass before, um, maybe don't ring in, maybe give others a, a chance to, to have a go. 
Um, so that's the um, Mount Eliza Gardens. Can I be? Oh, Go sorry. Go oh, I was just going to say that the um, the Gardens of Hope, the Global Gardens of Peace um, idea, I've written an article about it for Organic Gardener, which is up on the website. Oh, beautiful. Okay, so if so people want to know more yeah. about it, want to know how they can help or if they want to donate, if they can't get to the open gardens, it's an amazing thing that they're doing and they've actually – this is something that they've been – trying to work and make happen for a long time mm-hmm. but they finally and there's going to be an announcement in the next week or so I think um, managed to get some funding so it looks as if it's actually going ahead in 2018 to build this first garden in the Gaza Strip so this is oh that's these, the one with Andrew that's the one with Andrew yeah, Laidlaw yeah, yeah. yeah pretty ambitious garden so, from what they said um, on the radio absolutely wow. <laughs> and the if you know you can get on the website and have a look at what they're doing even if you just like their Facebook page yeah. and follow them on <laughs> yeah, Twitter yeah, and yeah. just give them a bit of support because this is something that um, has been on the boil now for nearly seven, eight mm. years. And Hard to it keep looks as if it's finally um, coming going. coming to pass and, mm. and with a bit of extra help and enthusiasm and people following it. So if you go to organicgardener.com.au, yeah. you can read my article and that's got all the links to, to see what's happening and, and where it's all going. Exciting. So I just thought I'd mention Yeah, beautiful. Um, okay, now um, Simon Rickard is one of our uh, favourite garden designers and um, he's been running a ser- series of workshops and he's got his final workshop on November 30 of Birds, Bees and Flowers, The Sex Life of Plants. Uh, spring is well and truly in the air and what better time to talk about the birds and the bees, says Simon. Um, in the morning you can join him for a presentation on the sex life of plants and you'll never look at a flower the same way again. <laughs> After lunch uh, you'll take a ramble around the beautiful gardens at Casa Allegra and as Simon says, every plant has a story to tell and he shares the science, history and legend behind the plants that grow in those gardens. All workshops or the workshop includes morning tea, lunch with a glass of wine and afternoon tea and attendees will require their own transport for travel um, between the event venues. Well, I think it's mm. all at the same place actually. Um, so for tickets you can go to www.ticketbow, so that's T-I-C-K-E-T-E-B-O dot com dot A-U forward slash Rickard Garden Series, which is R-I-C-K-A-R-D-G-A-R-D-E-N-S-E-R-I-E-S, Rickard Garden Series. So that's the um, the talk, day talk with Simon Rickard, which should be an absolute treat. And um, just in relation to 3CR, on the 3rd of December, to coincide with the International Day of People with Disability, the 3CR Gardening Show will be broadcasting a special show focusing on the benefits of gardening and horticultural activities for people with disabilities. Guests that morning will include Stephen Wells, a horticultural therapist, nurse and gardens and grounds project officer with Austin Health. And I'll just interject myself there by saying that I um, was at a sensory gardens workshop last Sunday and uh, Stephen was one of the speakers there and he was brilliant, had a lot of fantastic um, information to share about designing garden from from that sort of um, sensory perspective. Um, lots of things which I hadn't even considered. Um, also on the show will be Basil Natoli, a garden teacher working with children with disabilities at three education department-run schools in Melbourne and running professional development workshops for teachers. 
thirdly, there'll be either Chris Reed, a horticultural consultant, or a member of his staff from the Humanscapes Kevin Hines Grow, a small team specialising in creating therapeutic environments and assisting clients with the design and development of horticultural-based therapy programs, professional development and staff training. So um, they'll also be coming into the studio. So um, that's goodness. That, that would be an amazing thing to go to, actually. And you had something else you I have. To I have an event I almost yeah. forgot to mention. Yeah. Um, it's actually tomorrow night, so Monday night. I wasn't going to open my garden uh, in Open Gardens Victoria because I've had seven in six years. But the uh, Moreland Council is I'm, I'm part of – it's a very, very small garden tour. But there's still some spaces left as far as I know. And um, this is part of the Backyard Harvest Festival. So I go to the Moreland City Council site, then go to Environment Trees and Bins, then Gardening and Food Production, and then make your way to the Backyard Harvest Festival. And the specific gardens, including mine, are there – to uh, mine is Karen Sutherland's Gunya Garden, and you can click on the links and book. It's ten dollars a person, and it, they're very very small. I think it's only twenty people in each in each garden tour. So they're all um, urban food gardening uh, food gardens. So this is part of Moreland City Council's um, push to um, assist food gardening in Moreland, which is fantastic. Awesome. So do you get to go to all the gardens or are you just going do to Do I one? get to go? No. no oh, sorry. If one, oh. if one pays the $10 <laughs> oh, and goes oh, on the tour, I are you going to all the gardens? Or oh, no, no. This is one? just for what you just book for one, one individual garden. private right. garden tour. Yep. Yeah. So, but it's an hour and a half tour on Monday night. Um, I'd have to look it up to remember whether it's 6 30 or I could look it up here. However, it's, it's an evening tour. So some of them are weekend tours. They're on this weekend and other, and other ones are in the evening. And, you know, there's, it's very special. It's very special to be able to get a tour like this in anybody's garden, to be honest. And a lot of these people would never open their garden otherwise. Um, so it's mine's either six thirty till eight or six till seven thirty. I really can't remember now, but I'll be there. <laughs> yeah, beautiful. Well, if you've just tuned in, you're listening to the Three CR Gardening Show. My name is Abby Bishop, and with me in the studio are Penny Woodward and Karen Sutherland from Edible Eden Design. Um, it is time now to invite our listeners to join us and the number to talk to us on the air is 94190155 and just to note that we will be talking with Angus Stewart at 8.30. Now guys, seeing as though the show today is all about the kitchen garden and produce and whatnot, I really think you should uh, share with listeners uh, your new project. You've got something going on. Oh, okay. Um, this is... Uh, I've been working on this now um, and almost not doing anything else, uh, which I think Karen um, may well be too. But last year I wrote an article for Organic Gardener magazine about tomatoes Mm -hmm. um, and specifically I interviewed Margot White down at the um, Royal Tasmanian Botanic Gardens um, and she for seven or eight years now has been growing tomato seedlings of heirloom tomatoes and Mm -hmm. each year they grow them, they grow thousands of seedlings um, and they sell them to raise money for the garden. So that she has a huge team of volunteers that work with her. And each year they've sold um, five, six, seven thousand seedlings, and they've made tens of thousands of dollars for Brilliant. the for the gardens. And um, so when I after I'd um, written the article for Organic Gardener magazine, Margot started <coughs> saying to me. Oh, look, we've got our 200th anniversary coming up in 2018. Oh, oh that's great, Margot. I'm really <laughs> pleased. Um, 
we thought it'd be really good to have a book about tomatoes for the 200th anniversary. <laughs> oh, that's great. Okay. I think that's a great idea. Um, would you like to write it? No, 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 no I'm not writing another book. Um, and Margot's a lovely but persistent person. <laughs> And I had said, well, look, maybe I could find someone else. And, and I started trying to think about someone else to do it. And um, I couldn't think of anyone who could do it on, you know, on their own. So in the end, I thought, maybe I'm thinking about this the wrong way. Maybe what we need to do is, what I need to do is get a team so that it isn't all just on my shoulders. Yes. So that's what I did. So I asked lovely Karen to to come on board with me and um, Janice Sutton, who is a Tasmanian woman who wrote the book Garlic Feast. Um, and the other thing we decided to do was just for a change to try self-publishing. Mm-hmm. So we have complete control over what the book looks like yep. and what is in it and all that sort of thing. So, And it entertains us. And it entertains <laughs> us. It does. Many emails. Yes. Collaborative, collaborative work is, is an interesting process, yep. but it's a learning, it's a mm. huge learning curve, mm. but it's um, it's good to be doing something very different because, mm. you know, this will be my my eighth book um, and it'll be just really interesting to be, to see the whole other side of it. I mean, I, I knew, I know how publishing works and all that sort of thing, but to be able to see what goes into the editing and the design and the and who gets paid what even yeah, you know yeah. in an industry where authors don't earn very much um it's all it's a it's a really interesting process so mm. quite apart from the tomatoes but i'm i'm doing the cultivar section so i've been doing the research on cold, the tomato cultivars in australia mm-hmm. that are readily available so yep. not necessarily seed saver networks yep. and going through all the seed suppliers in australia um, I've found that we've got about 400 different heirloom tomato cultivars available in Australia right now. It's just staggering, really, isn't it? Which, you know, so they, the, figures, know. the figures range from worldwide from about 5,000 to 15,000 oh, different cultivars what? because every country has sort of their own range of cultivars because yeah, yeah. people keep breeding them. Um, and this is not taking into account the, the cultivars that are done for commercial tomatoes. So which you're not have, including which all have of them. N- Not including mm. them at all. <laughs> So these we are like just tomatoes. these it's are the just world. the heirloom open pollinated <laughs> tomatoes. Yeah, um, there's going to be about 200, 250 cultivars in the book because mm-hmm. we just don't have room to do all of them, and yep. some of them are more available than others. So yep. my criterion yep. is that they have to be available for people to buy. So I've been working through that list. I'm now up to 210, I think. So I've only got a few more to go. Yep. Um, Karen, you might like to talk about your section and what you're doing. So I'm talking about growing in every way possible. So talking about whether it's growing in urban conditions, in rooftops, uh, on rooftops, I should say, which is where I grow a lot of mine because I get more sun up there, in recycled containers or in hanging baskets. My little hanging basket ones are doing quite well at the moment, actually. Okay, I'm, I'm, what cultivar? Uh, yes, I have to check with you whether it's uh, – I just kind of randomly bought it at the wholesaler because I thought, oh, good, they could uh, – tumbling, tumbling, tu- tumbling tumbling Tom, Tom, I think. Is that okay. a, is that a it is, F1? It is. It's an F1. Oh, damn. Anyway. That's all never right. Never mind. <laughs> I wanted something to show well, – well, well, I don't know. Are there any – I hadn't actually checked with you yet. There are. There are. One of the things that happens with, I need them. with um, tomatoes is that they may start out as an F1, but quite That's often right. they get mm. dehybridised by – 
garden enthusiasts it's deciding so to grow them out and select them and keep selecting for you know what was the original characteristics. So there are there are quite a few dwarf tomatoes that you can grow in in baskets that, and, and, that are not F one. And if I kept those, so so for instance, if I kept the seed from those and tried to, so if anything that came up would not be an F one anymore because you I need to do it over a few generations okay. to for it to be stable mm, mm-hmm. but what you would do is you would look at the plant and then at the tomato that comes up and you'd select for the one that was closest to the one that you are trying to save or closest to the original or closest mm. to the flavor with modern um f1 tomatoes it's much harder to do to dehybridize mm, um, but mm. it used to be quite easy and within a couple of generations you you mm. could have a really good open pollinated form of of the f1 In- interestingly amongst these because i've got several in hanging baskets and one of them in particular is very different in habit to the others yeah. so there's yeah. already instability even yeah. in mm. say 10 you know one out of 10 I think, mm. i've never grown so many tumbling tomatoes so yeah. i didn't see yeah. it before but yeah. it just sticks right out it doesn't tumble at all the others are really yeah. hang, little little well, neat it, hanging that, that may have been a mistake in the sewing or, or it may be a, a reversion mm. to one of the mm. parents of the mm. of the f1 interesting so yeah mm. interesting to see what the fruit's like and compare that yes well. yeah, yeah true yeah true. yeah now penny we were talking earlier about you know um the importance of um reading about your own kind of climate and 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 that sort of thing your own soils in your own country and you know how how you know american books and english books sure you might be able to get great general information but they really aren't specific to australian climates and you know what's going on here so will your tomato book kind of come come at it from that perspective oh absolutely yeah. it's totally australian it's yeah. all based on australian conditions and australian yeah. fertil what we can use as fertilizers in australia and it's all total, it's all of course it goes without saying that everything we're talking about is following organic principles mm-hmm. so yeah. it's talking about you know perhaps the, the insects the diseases that we encounter here yep all all of that um I have to cover. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, and you think that'll set it, set it apart from all the other tomato growing oh, books out there? Well, absolutely. Yeah. And and the fact that the cultivars that we're looking at are are what can be found in Australia. Mm, so, there's mm. if you look at American websites, you, they have a whole lot of tomatoes that we don't have in Australia. Yeah. So yeah. there is there's no point in writing about those and. Because of current uh, restrictions on importing any Solanaceae seeds, so that's the whole family, Mm -hmm. because of diseases associated with them that aren't yet in Australia, it's almost impossible to bring tomato seeds into Australia. Mm -hmm. You should never order tomato seeds from any seed company or get your family to send them because there are some really nasty diseases that are affecting particularly the US. Yep. Um, and and Australia is free of them, um, and we don't want those yeah. diseases in Australia. So what we've got here, unless you're prepared to pay four or five thousand for a phytosanitary certificate, <laughs> um, we've what we've got here is what we've got, or what what our own local breeders produce. Mm. Mm. Okay, but also our, our climate is very different too. So it's that classical thing of. Um, of full sun being described for berries or things like that, and yep. yet then the, uh, our climate is so harsh that they may need shading. So it's all that sort of taking into all all of the taking into account the differences in our climate with the harshness, and also the fact that we have very many climatic zones in Australia. Absolutely. Yeah. So the how to grow tomatoes in Tasmania as opposed to how to grow them in Queensland are two very different 
different times. Um, so will you be talking to gardeners around the country about Current, their successes? And, yeah, yeah that, that isn't Many that the interviews. best part <laughs> of research is just, you know, putting the feelers out and talking to people around and you just learn so much. Mm. You get so many And tips. gardeners are so generous. Yeah, they are. No, they're yeah. happy to share information. And, I was yeah. going to say they're also so varied. You can't believe how different people's approaches are to doing this. I bet, yeah. And you, you learn something <laughs> along amazing. the way, don't you? Mm, yeah. Mm. All right, we should get to some of our callers now. So we'll go to Anne in Oak Park. Good morning, Anne. Oh, uh, good morning, listeners. Uh, this morning I want to talk about how you can save our very large and precious trees. Fantastic. I'll begin, I'll begin by telling you a nice little story. I'll be as quick as I can about this. I lived in Noble Park for over 20 years and there I became an oak tree breeder. What I did was I used to grow the oak trees in the little, uh, not so little really, plastic containers, which there is still a a use for because they last forever. And uh, I'd place them on the nature strip and the motorists would drive past and take them to wherever, and uh, that had a happy ending. And one of the oak trees, I had a friend of mine take to the Otway Ranges, where he planted it in the Otway Ranges. That would be a rather large and beautiful tree now. Um, yeah, to get to the point of how you save the trees, what you do is you've got to get uh, an advisory committee on the council, something like Moorland now has, there's 12 people headed off by a pal of mine named Tony and uh, he knows all about trees and how to save them. And, um, yes, you put a caveat on the property, your heritage listed around where the tree is so they can't, the developers can't touch the property, they can't build on or near the blooming tree. And uh, that's really quite simple, people. Only costs a couple of hundred dollars, and if you save up your, your money and uh, go together and, and work with the council, I'm sure we'll save all the big trees in time. Just be quick that they're not allowed to do what they want to do in Footscray. With that one, somewhere in today's age, there's an article about the big tree the developers want to cut down and make an example of for the future. The developers can go to hell as far as we're concerned. Oh, I think and, there's a lot of people who, who share your mindset, Anne. And also congratulations to the Aboriginal woman who won the seat of Northcote because we want our law, L-O-R-E, folk law respected and not the man-made laws that are ridiculous and so harsh to nature that it's just not funny anymore. Anyway, have a lovely uh, weekend, people, and enjoy your gardening. Good on you, Anne. Thank you. I think Anne's right in the sense that there's this attitude that, well, that one tree doesn't really yeah, matter. And we can always We can yeah. always plant another one. Yeah. Mm. But, you know, those. What one of the things that we need to do, I think, in our society is to put a monetary value on every single tree. Mm. And that's being done in quite a few countries. In New York, they've valued every single street tree. You, it's harder to do when it's on private property, but somehow we have to recognise it on private property too because... You know, they're, they're just so important to our cities, to to not only our mental health but to our physical health in creating shade, in, in keeping temperatures down, in Filtering cleaning the air, cleaning mm. the air mm. all a whole range of different things. And, uh, and it's kind of sad, though, that we ha- we 
sort of do have to put a monetary yep. value on it because we should just mm. be respecting mm. our, you know, trees and animals for mm. what they are, yeah. you know, just just for being understand, there. I understand, but the, the whole point is that we, when you're talking with developers and with councils oh, and absolutely. with state governments, absolutely. you mm. have to be able to show that there is an intrinsic financial as well as the emotional. Yeah, because that's what it all comes down to these days. it all comes down to the money. Yeah, mm. Absolutely. All right, well, let's go to uh, David and Ashwood. Good morning, David. Good morning. You've got an I'm, apple tree problem. I have. I've got an apple tree that must be, you know, 10 years old or something like that. I'd say it's about four metres diameter, four metres tall. In the last two years, including this year, it's only had about four apples on it and it's got a beehive, which happens to be in the wall of my house, but only about five metres away from the apple tree, so it's not a lack of bees. And I'm just wondering, is it because there's no other nearby apple tree for it to cross-pollinate with, or is there another reason? Well, you do need a second apple tree to Mm. cross-pollinate. It's essential with apples. So if you've got one in the neighbourhood, you should be fine, but if you don't know of any sort of in any of your neighbour's properties, then you need to look at putting another apple tree in. And, and does it matter which kind of it does. apple It does. It does. So you'll need to identify what you've got and then find a, a pollinator for it. Okay, because I've lost track of what mine was. It, it, the apples that it has, they largely green, but if I leave them on for a long time, they get a touch of red on them, so I'm not sure. Yeah, You'd look, almost say it was a Granny Smith, but then they get mm. this touch of red, so I think it's something else. There's sort of five or six hundred different cultivars mm. of apples available, so it's a, it's can be a bit tricky. Karen, what do you think? I was going to also add that yes, you may have had an apple. A neighbour may have had an apple tree for years that inadvertently pollinated yours, and then that tree may have died or been cut down, and yep. so that's probably why you suddenly lost yours. Um, one thing that I sometimes suggest to people, and it depends how much room you've got too, is that crab apples can be really good pollen donors, mm. and so you can also um, buy the the uh, very small columna or even a dwarf crab apple just something small just to put in so so it will just donate some pollen for you and have that near the tree rather than putting another really large tree because that could be difficult the other point to note is if you can try and um, remember when the apples fruited whether they were early mid or late season Mm. and then you can try and find something that gives pollen at that time time. and that's you know a bit of detective work at least Um, there's a really good uh, online nursery called um, heritage fruit trees um, and they have quite a lot of information about different apple cultivars and what pollinates what Mm -hmm. Um, it's probably it's getting a bit late to buy a bare-rooted apple tree but you Uh, I went to a um, well actually it was Bunnings or Kmart or somewhere and they had um some apple trees in pots. Yeah, you um, can you can get them in pots, but I'm suggesting I'm suggesting well. you just go to this website to have a bit of a look at, at the different ones that oh, you can get. Mm. Um, and and also they'll tell you they'll give you some ideas of more general um, pollinators amongst the apple cultivars. Okay, um, what was uh, nursery or website? It's again? called Heritage Fruit Trees, and it's actually in in Beaufort in um, Western Victoria. Oh right, I just went through there two weeks ago. Yeah, but they—it's just a really good site just for general information yep. about about apples. Um, and the other thing is, you can buy a dwarf apple tree if you haven't got a lot of space, which you could just put into a big pot. Right. If you okay. don't don't want to go the mm, crab apple mm. way. Good. I or dwarf crab apple too. My, my theory is that uh, it must have been the lack of another apple tree. Mm. Yep. 
Yeah, if it had okay. only if it had only been one year, it might have just been seasonality. So um, mm, you know, strong mm. winds or heavy rain when the when the apple was in flower. But now that it's happened two years in a row, it just suggests mm. to me that you've lost your pollen. Yeah, because some apples yeah. are semi self fertile. They they yeah. they will pollinate themselves, but not all. So yours yeah. may not yours may have lost yeah. its nearby neighbour friend. Yeah. Okay, Good luck. That answer your question, David. Yes, I think that's uh, that's good. And this is a matter of interest. I think probably two years ago I rang you up about my uh, lemon uh, lemon scented gum that looked as though it was going to die, and you all had lots of suggestions. <laughs> and because I did multiple things, I don't know what worked, but um, I yeah, I did lots of things like aerated the soil, tried to eliminate possums getting into it so much. Um, Mixed up molasses with water molasses, and yeah. watered that in to improve the soil, um, I don't know, microbes. Activity. Yep. Mm. And um, it's recuperated from its death-like state and it's now about, <laughs> well, I'd say about 70% healthy. Well done. Fantastic. It's very exciting. Yeah. Success yeah. story. We like to hear them. Okay. Thank you very much. Good on you, David. Thanks a lot. Okay. Bye for Bye. now. And we'll go to Thelma in Oak Park. Good morning, Thelma. Oh, good morning, Anne and Karen, uh, uh, Penny and Karen. Um, I have a problem with my Hoya, which is, I suppose, about three years old now, in a hanging basket under Liza, Liza Light. Um, it's, uh, it's turning its toes up. I'm wondering, with the severe frost, whether that could have affected it. But what I'm interested in, I want to repot it, and I'd like to know what... Um, the best mix because I've Mr. Googled it and I've had various suggestions. Uh, could you help me with that? And also, the other query was the, 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 the tendrils that have gone out. There's a couple of them that you know, if you scratch the bark, it still looks green, but there's a whole lot of leaves that have dropped off and the others look tired. Would I be better cutting that back? Yeah, you, I mean, you could, Thalman, it's always good to cut leaves and, and um, plant matter off that is sort of decaying a bit because that, you know, will bring in um, bring in pest insects and whatnot. Um, in terms of potting up, you know, Hoyas don't mind being a bit pot-bound. Um, so, you know, I don't know when you last potted it up. Um, oh, well, yeah, it's about three years ago. <laughs> okay, yeah, well, you know, it possibly is time to do it now. You wouldn't want to go to a huge pot, just go to your next size up, and, and they like a really rich potting mix, So, and, but something that's well-draining as well. Right. Well, what, uh, any suggestions are you allowed to say, what potting type of potting well, If you just get a, um, like an organic, yeah, always, always go for premium. It really is worth yeah. spending the extra couple of dollars right. to get get the good potting mix and, um, right. you know, just an orchid mix, just a sort of a... a um, orchid yeah. mix are quite barky. They are quite barky, so yeah. You could maybe, do a, a maybe mixture. You mix yeah. an orchid mix yeah. With, yeah. with a good, good they do quality like that. potting mix. My mum had a Hoya for... Orchid mix. No peat moss or river sand? No, river, maybe a bit of river sand because you want the good drainage, but I wouldn't be putting in too much peat moss because ah, right. they don't want to stay so, wet. So, they don't a, like a, being... A good mm. or, or good mix. Right. And the suggested fertiliser for it? Because I don't think I've ever fertilised Don't fertilise it after you've repotted it. Give it a chance to settle in. Maybe give it a bit of um, seaweed extract? Sea, sea salt. Sea salt, but that's not a complete fertiliser. That will just help with the transplant shock. So mm. wait till it, you see some evidence that it's actually starting to grow again before you feed it. Plus your potting mix is going to have you know a certain uh, amount of yeah. fertilisers in it anyway. So yeah, just just try and improve the health of the plant before you put it into total so grow can, mode. So I can sort of 
soak it in the sea salt before I repot. Dilute sea salt. Dilute, yeah. Mm. Dilute, yeah, dilute. Yeah. And, yeah. and then later on, when, you know, as I start growing, I can still put sea salt on or, or a, a dry fertiliser. Um. Dry, yeah, dry fertilizers I, always burn. Root, yeah, can burn roots. I don't use dry fertilizers, no. but but maybe some organic pelletized um, mm. complete fertilizer. What about Troforte? Tro <laughs> um, yeah, that would be okay. Would it? That's, oh, good. Well, that's that's um, sea salt's latest. Mm. Um, oh, is it? Right. it's not it's not certified organic, but it's an okay fertilizer. It's, yeah, yeah, okay yeah. No, you'd be okay with like that. Okay. But uh, make sure I actually wouldn't grow it in a hanging basket. I think probably, um, I was just thinking that it's drying uh, yeah, out too much. Yeah, mm. I, I would be putting it in a in a solid in a um, mm. sort of concrete type pot. I know mm. my mum mm. grew it in, in a white painted decorated mm. pot that wasn't mm. too big. Um, All right. Probably only a, a foot, uh, sort of eighteen inches across, mm-hmm. um, and it grew right up and right along, and it didn't need anything. Probably kept its roots cool because I've got, I've got it, a it similar one in a massive cool. solid ceramic yeah. pot, oh, and I've had it there for about maybe twenty five years. Yeah. And I, I, yeah, I, I sometimes I don't water like. it for yeah. months, yeah. and it it's is. just a monster. So oh, right. they don't need much once they get established no. in a nice shady spot. Not, not I'm thinking that yours got a bit too hot, too exposed, and too dry. Yeah, and they don't like to dry out. Yeah, no. yeah I think what I'll do, I'll, I'll grow it in a, a pot down lower on a shelf, and where I've got the hooks, when I can train the tendrils up on Indeed. the hooks. Indeed, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Good. Yep, they like to travel and move around yep. the place. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, then. Well, thanks very much for your help. Good on you, Thelma. Thanks a lot. Right bye bye. And we'll go to uh, Hugh in Yarra Valley. Good morning, Hugh. Oh, Tamu, good morning. And Victoria, good morning. Angus, good morning. <laughs> oh, I'm having a problem with the tree. It's, uh, the botanical name is Peter Pungens Glauca Kosterei, but most people call it the blue spruce. And I had many, many thousands of them because I was mm. a fanatic on them. And I lost them one after another, and it took a long time for me to wake up that the cockchafers used to come through the, to the drainage hole and so on and so forth, and they died slowly. Oh. And the one I have in, in uh, ringing about now is one of the last of the Mohicans. <laughs> and um, the, uh, it was um, covered with blue, blue, uh, blueberries. Mm. It was deprived of sunlight. And it was, um, but anyway, it was still alive. I have repotted it and put it in the more sandy soil because the soil seemed to be very fatty. So I put it in a, in a half a meter pot. The tree is about a meter. Uh, put it in a half meter pot with a bit more sandy soil. But, and now comes, after all this preamble, um, Panna, what do I do with the bark? The bark is loose. It's flaking off into two, three inches, 50 to 5 centimeters, 7.5 centimeters flakes. But it is, it's still around the, the, the actual core of the, of the timber, you know, of the, of the trunk. But it is loose. Now, I thought perhaps we're giving it a, a grafting tape and go all the way up slowly and try to put it back on again, or shall I just let nature take its course? Because I have had the same problem with the flowering cherry tree, 
and uh, I just um, and the, the bike was loose. And um, the advice of the esteemed panel was, yes, uh, uh, let nature take its course. So, panel, what am I going to do? Hugh, I think ultimately if the bark wants to fall off, it's going to fall off. You may delay the process by putting um, some tape around it um, temporarily, but you might also, uh, if you put it all the way up, set up a situation where you'll end up with fungal problems because you're not getting the air movement around the trunk. And insects. And and insects possibly getting in. Mm. Look at without actually seeing the tree and understanding mm. exactly what's happening to it. I my my inclination um, would be not to do anything and just see how mm. it goes. Mm. Now, what about this uh, this black paint? I can't think of the proper name. Um, you know, you use it for um, for tree for tree to, cutting. Yes. Uh, what if I paint over that or something? I think that's just interfering with nature. I agree, like Penny, just let it take its course. So I'm, I'm not actually very knowledgeable about blue spruces, but a lot of trees do shed bark at different times of the year and so or different times of their life cycle, so I'm not really uncertain that it's not a natural thing. You're saying that none of your blue spruces ever did this before? Yeah, I, I look good. I Look, it is so it's it's heartbreaking with the blue spruce. Um, the um, they they grow very slowly. The the tree is uh, as I said about a meter, but it is thirty years old. It only grows a centimeter a year or something like well, that. Yeah, it's it's quite old. Then it's probably quite natural for it to lose some bark. Hugh, I'd just be looking at, you know, doing what you can to improve the health of the tree. And, and, I mean, Stephen Ryan is in next week and we can talk to him about it then and see if he's got any um, suggestions because he certainly would be um, the go-to person to talk about. That sounds like a great idea, But, look, Hugh, I'm going to have to let you go now because we've got Angus on the other line for our interview. Okay, All right. Thank you very much for your help. Good on you, Hugh. Good luck. Good on you. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Stephen Ryan could be a good person for yeah. that. <laughs> Better than me, that's for sure. Now, as I mentioned earlier today, we are talking with Angus Stewart about his new book, Grow Your Own, How to Be an Urban Farmer, co-authored by Simon Leake and published by Murdoch Books. And Angus is on the line with us now. Good morning, Angus. Good morning, AB. How's it going down in Tassie? Absolutely beautiful this morning. It couldn't be uh, more perfect. You got, up, you got up early for another interview, I seem to recall. Yes, indeed. So, uh, <laughs> No rest for the wicked. No rest at all. All right. Now, look, Angus, there are a couple of other books out there about growing veggies, but this book, as well as imparting that really practical information about soils and pests and disease and whatnot, uh, I think what has really set it apart for me is that it hones in on the pros and cons of uh, growing produce in a built-up environment. And, it, you know, it looks at things that people don't always, um, you know, consider in, in books such as light levels and restricted space and dealing with water when you're um, growing stuff on a balcony. Um, and I also found the title intriguing because, you know, I think we've all got a, a bit of um, quiescent farmer in all of us. Um, so I just wanted to know what... What is urban farming and why did you feel the need to write a book about it? Sure. Well, I guess when people mention farms, you think about rolling hills and uh, big paddocks, uh, the like. Uh, But urban farming is is really what made civilization possible uh, in the first place when uh, people first started gathering together in in, uh, towns and then 
they grew into cities. Um, so, yeah, that urban farming thing really went right into the 20th century. And in Australia, it was the quarter acre block with the lemon tree and the raised uh, garden beds that, that uh, I certainly grew up with with my grandparents. And that uh, sort of urban farming thing is, is still obviously very strong in uh, developing countries around the world. So I, I do agree with you. Uh, people have this interest in farming, which I think in Australia is now being expressed with uh, farmers' markets and people really becoming more aware of where their food is coming from and how, more importantly, it, it is being grown, what uh, sort of inputs are being used. So people want healthy food that uh, is free of harmful chemicals. So I've just, uh, Simon and I have, have noticed this growing awareness and interest in where food comes from and people in cities wanting to grow their own. But um, in those contexts, you've, as you say, you've got very specialised conditions. So to try and uh, grow food in cities, you're often got to adapt the uh, conditions that you've got and, and obviously, as you say, be aware of those special conditions. I mean, in cities, you've got wind tunnels as another example. You know, the wind rips down and yep. uh, you've got a vertical garden and, uh, yeah, with a subtly aspect of uh, pushing it uphill somewhat. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, I, I mean, your uh, co-author, Simon Leake, he's a soil scientist and um, your chapter on soils, it's it's got a lot of practical information for, for home produce growers. But um, so what, what would you think are some of the important considerations um, for gardeners in city areas regarding the soil and growing media? Sure. Well, yes, Simon uh, and I both studied agricultural science back in the 1970s and, and Simon established his own uh, soil testing laboratory in Sydney, which he's been doing for several decades now. So he has seen uh, an extraordinary range of uh, uh, particularly soil situations, but just uh, people growing all sorts of plants in uh, cities. And so he has got this uh, amazing bank of uh, test results and, and knowledge that he's built up, which we really wanted to uh, document. So things like pollution in urban areas, uh, if you've got a soil that has been uh, sort of receiving uh, the pollution of, of sometimes uh, centuries in the inner city, uh, then that can uh, impact on trying to grow vegetables, particularly root vegetables. So, yes, those sort of soil issues are uh, important if you're using your natural soil that, that uh, may have been subjected to lead over the years. Uh, so that, that's an issue that, that Simon is expert in and we give guidelines there. But also I think when people are trying to grow in, in um, on balconies, rooftops and things like that, it, it, you really need a lightweight um, growing medium or potting mix uh, that, again, is, is something that uh, Simon's expertise has added, I think, uh, a great practical element to the book. So uh, trying to match the, the right uh, soil or potting mix slash growing medium to what you're trying to do in those uh, urban and suburban spaces, uh, I think, is, is one of the strengths of the book. 
And I think also maybe even, you know, dealing with things like uh, runoff of excess fertiliser when you're, you know, um, growing on roofs and, and balconies and whatnot could be an important issue. Absolutely. It, it, they're all of the sort of issues that uh, I think we as scientists are, are extremely um, uh, concerned about and, and wanting to give people those practical guidelines. How do you actually... Uh, deal with these situations. So everyone loves the idea of growing their own food, but uh, to me the devil's uh, often in the detail. And so our objective really is to try and go back to those first principles of uh, getting the right environment, uh, providing the right growing medium, uh, choosing the right crops for your the environment that you've created and and um, how to propagate them yourself. Can you save your own seed? Uh, can you create your own fertiliser using uh, something like a worm farm or a bakashi bucket? And all, all of those things come back to basic principles. To me, there's no such thing as a green thumb. It's, it's understanding those basic principles, and, and that's the sort of book we wanted to write. Yeah, beautiful. And also coming back to your um, your section on pollution in soils, you know, Karen and I were talking earlier and she's um, got her own stories behind um, dealing with pollution in, in soils. Karen, did you want to just talk to Angus about that? Um, I mean, I have a very, very limited experience compared compared to yourself and Simon, Angus. Good morning, by the way. And I'm, I'm <laughs> really enjoying I was in the middle of reading the book. When you're in, I thought, oh, what? I'm meant to be speaking. Sorry. Um, uh, I was helping uh, William Anglis Institute, which is right in the centre of Melbourne. That's a kind of a um, – it's a tertiary institute that has a history of being a cooking school and they have a butchery course and – patisserie, all sorts of things like that. So based around those kinds of um, those kinds of educational topics. And they wanted a more of a perennial kitchen garden, so not annuals because they don't have the staff for that. But the point was that we did soil testing. So we sent to- soil off from various parts of this very large area, internal courtyard, for testing and for heavy metal testing. And the only soils, like all this old soil that had been there for forever, had no discernible... Uh, potential problem levels in heavy in heavy metals as far as heavy metals went and the only areas that did were where it was noticeable that soils or soil mixes had been brought in from yards in the last couple of years and they'd said to me oh yes we tried to get a little herb or vegetable area growing here or there so we brought in some bags of soil from a nursery they didn't actually tell me where from but they were the only ones that had slightly higher levels or you know more problematic levels Mm. of heavy metals and and it just brings up the point, um, you'd, you'd probably be familiar, or Simon Leake would be at least, with Dr Peter May from Burnley, who's oh, also yes, a yes. soil expert. So he was one of my lecturers at Burnley. And I went to a um, Sustainable Gardening Australia lecture that he gave, I think it was about a year ago now, SGA. They do a lot of um, professional development kind of information nights and things. And he was talking about this sort of topic and saying yards just, urban yards and city yards and and places supplying soils just don't, test their um don't test their soils on their soil mixes for heavy metals or or you know they're not careful to avoid say um i remember penny talking to me speaking to me once about um the problems with worms being killed by uh, manure by horse manure i mean not, not that that's commonly mixed into nursery mixes but People just assume that if it comes from a from a yard, that it's perfectly safe, that it's being bought new, that it's safe. But it's not always the case, as I'm sure you would have come across. Absolutely, those are the 
sort of issues, as I say, that, that Simon's had experience for decades with. Mm. And uh, so, yes, manure is coming from uh, feedlot situations uh, where a lot of commercial, uh, commercially sold manure uh, packs have, have uh, come from because it's e- much easier to collect. Mm. Uh, certainly, there, there are all sorts of additives that can influence the quality of of the uh, manure in this case, and then when that's added to a uh, a potting mix or, or growing mix, then the sort of problems you're, you're talking about can eventuate. So yes, I think let let the buyer beware is a great uh, uh, principle in this case. And uh, yeah, I think we take for granted some of these things. And and the word natural often mm. <laughs> so manure you think of as a natural. Thing, but uh, all these, all of those various uh, uh, chemicals are in the environment that uh, can find their way there as well. So, a bit of science goes a, a, a very long way. Angus, can I just add to that? Just coming from my organic background um, and having done research into this, that if you buy organically certified soil mixes or potting mixes, they are tested for heavy metals. So, you know, if we've got listeners out there wondering, well, what do I do? Where do I go? Um, it's part of the reason why we have organic certification is because we know that these products get tested. And one of the tricky things about potting mixes is that quite often they're labelled organic because they come from nat- you mm-hmm. know, naturally organic sources. Use the word but organic. That doesn't, around that so doesn't, much, doesn't mean it? that they're certified organic. So you actually mm. need to look for the organic certification to be confident that you're buying certified organic stuff. So sorry, I just thought that oh, I think our that's listeners a great point. Were, were probably thinking, oh, God, what do I do? Mm. <laughs> oh, no, I think it, it is, uh, you know, in this case, yeah, the, the science behind that uh, organic certification is is the thing that's going to give you that uh, peace of mind and a guarantee. So whether it is that or, or some other uh, testing that, that people have commissioned, so the Australian standards are another um Mm. way of uh, guideline basically that helps you to know uh, what is in a uh, potting mix or or a uh, a growing mix um, artificially created um, soil that, that people use for growing vegetables and often they can be too high in nutrients some of these constructed uh, uh, garden mixes so it um, we've seen some really interesting examples of um potting mix, uh, growing mix producers putting in so much manure and uh, organic fertiliser that uh, it, it's literally uh, too much too much fertiliser. Mm. Mm. Yeah, there's there's a lot of, uh, as you say, get, getting that, that peace of mind comes from uh, um, buying products that um, have been tested properly, mm. Mm. but also constructing your own. So going out and... Uh, you know, creating your own compost, uh, knowing where the manure is, is coming from, all of those things are, are things that people can do if they've got uh, sufficient time and space. Mm. Now, Angus, um, a lot of people are moving to smaller homes and, you know, some people have got a tiny garden or no garden at all. And just wondering, how have you dealt with this topic in the book? Yes, we have uh, really focused on a particular case studies of uh, new growing systems that are uh, emerging to cater for this growing uh, market in urban farming in small spaces. 
So the uh, concept of wicking beds, uh, uh, which is capillary watering, where you have a reservoir of water underneath the growing mix and the water actually soaks uh, upwards by capillary action and the plant can access uh, water freely uh, in as much quantity as it needs and uh, that is something that has been developed now into uh, systems like there's a veggie pod uh, system that uh, is in the book, for instance, which is a, a, a really interesting little wicking bed system. It's quite with a good a, system, uh, isn't it, Angus? Mm. Yes, it's got a professional sort of greenhouse cover, which uh, mm. I'm, I'm finding keeps out the possums down here <laughs> in uh, Tasmania, which is a, uh, a real bonus. <laughs> and it gives um, a little bit of shade in a hot, sunny spot too, so it's, it's quite a good mesh, that mesh. I've got a little veggie pot as well. Yes, yes, and uh, other things. There's a, uh, a, a interesting system. Uh, a couple, a young couple in Brisbane, have created called the composter, with an oh, A that, on the end. Is that the little pot with the? Oh, which? Oh, do you mean the in-ground compost? Yeah, it's a worm farm basically. So a, a garden, a small sort of self-contained garden bed with a. Uh, a worm tower. So oh, that's the worm one that tower. looks like a Mexican sombrero. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah I did see that up there. That is yeah. really interesting. That that little. I've been meaning to buy one to test it out. Yeah, yeah. Look, it uh, like every worm farm. You, you've got to understand the needs of the earthworms, uh, but it's a fairly simple set of uh, needs that they have, and you just tip your kitchen scraps into the tower, and um, the fertilizer just. Uh, and leaches out into the, the surrounding potting mix and, uh, you know, you're completing the cycle. So instead mm. of worrying about where, where the fertiliser's coming from and, uh, you know, you can construct your own growing mix and then, then feed it with your own kitchen scraps. And these are also systems that, you know, with a little bit of uh, um, kind of foresight, you can create your own system. So a bit of PVC pipe with some holes drilled in it makes a perfectly good uh, worm tower and so you can either sort of have a ready-made growing system but you can also construct your own and the same goes for wicking beds and the other thing is uh, vertical gardens so often people have a north-facing wall which uh, you can get a lot more out of by going upwards with your climbing beans or, or, uh, yeah, various uh, other cucumbers, whatever. You can train them up a trellis. Uh, So, yes, a a green wall is another example. Um, And we give an example as a a guy in Sydney who has uh, worked with schools to recycle PET uh, drink bottles and turn them into a, uh, a green wall that uh, one bottle drips down into the one below mm, it and clever. you water it from above and, and so you can have a whole wall of uh, herbs, for instance. So they're the, the sort of innovations that we're seeing on a regular basis, people coming up with, with ideas, recycling ideas, but also these new growing systems that, that are designed specifically for people with uh, these very uh, limited urban spaces yeah and as you say you know there's plenty of um commercial ones coming on board now as well you know if you don't want to be recycling stuff and and building your own Mm. there's there's plenty available yep 
Yeah. Now, Angus, in the book, um, you know, as Penny and uh, Karen sort of, when they were flicking through it, they mentioned, oh, you know, there's there's no specific um, information about growing tomatoes or or beans. That's because there's another about, book coming out about tomatoes. That's that's exactly right. <laughs> I have to wait for that one. But you know, you you sort of come at come at it from a different perspective, looking at the families. What? Why did you do that? Yeah. And can you explain a little bit about that? Absolutely. It is something that, that I, uh, you know, I've got a whole library full of vegetable growing books which um, tend to take that that uh, very specific approach of looking at uh, particular crops and the varieties and so on. So rather than reinventing that particular wheel um, and try to cover every every crop, we have taken a, a broader overview. So the chapter called Food Families and it's particularly useful, we, we felt, to uh, look at it in a, a slightly different way because each uh, plant family that, that has produced a range of food plants uh, is affected by often a similar uh, group of pests and diseases. So the idea of crop rotation in the vegetable garden is uh, particularly important to try and... Uh, make sure you don't get a build-up of those specific uh, problems for a uh, plant family such as, you know, tomatoes, you've got eggplants and uh, peppers and capsicums, uh, all of those uh, plants, you know, you need to obviously rotate from year to year. Uh, so that was a, our motivation there, but also to look at uh, the native plants that, uh, the Aboriginal people have been using for thousands of years and we have a similar uh, group of families in Australia such as the celery family and carrot family, uh, for instance, where there are a number of uh, bush foods which are emerging uh, or re-emerging, let's say, that, that um, belong to that particular family. Uh, so in each food family... Uh, I've picked out examples of, of these bush foods that we're now uh, getting more access to in horticulture. So the, the broad, uh, the big picture of, of where our food plants come from was, was something we really wanted to explore and it's a fascinating story in itself, the domestication of plants. A lot of our plants come, food plants come from Europe and uh, the Americas where um, agriculture was uh, taken to a much higher level than in Australia. There's considerable evidence, of course, in Australia that uh, the Aboriginal people weren't just uh, hunter-gatherers. They actually had uh, various horticultural systems as well for growing uh, food that uh, people are, are learning more and more about too. So, yeah, that was, that was the idea with food families. Yeah, um, I one of the things I found Angus is how important um, worm farms are, and I think particularly in urban situations, and and really important for recycling as well, because so much waste goes to tips and places where it shouldn't go, and I think it's one of the things that people who live in urban environments really can do to help the environment. And you've got a really good chapter in there on worm farms. Can you talk a little bit about that and how important they are? 
sure. Yes, that that's one of my uh, pet subjects, really. Uh, oh no, so, off but, we go. <laughs> <laughs> well, earthworms make tremendous pets. You know, so, <laughs> just don't name them all. I actually, yeah. my daughter has now got a worm farm, and one of her friends in Canberra wanted a worm farm, and she asked me if I'd post her worms <laughs> for her worm farm, and she was delighted well, to get uh, a thousand of my worms. First she class. Feels like it. Absolutely, she feels like it's part of the family. <laughs> well, I, I think your point, though, is that, uh, and this is why I'm so passionate about the subject, is that pretty much anyone can use a worm farm to uh, particularly recycle all that soft uh, kitchen waste that, uh, if you've got a healthy diet, you are producing every day. And it is the perfectly balanced uh, source of uh, nutrients. So if you are harvesting from your own kitchen garden, uh, basically all, all of that, uh, all of those kitchen scraps, let's not call it waste because it's a tremendous resource, mm-hmm. uh, contains uh, not only nutrients but the right balance of nutrients to replace what you are taking out of your vegetable garden uh, on often a daily basis. So people often don't consider how much nutrient is, is being removed when they harvest. And for that to go to landfill is just an absolute tragedy. Yeah. But rather than seeing it as a negative thing, what, uh, you know, that, that we've got all this waste and you should feel guilty about uh, wasting it, I, I choose to, uh, we wanted to frame it in a much more positive light. Here's a source of free fertiliser that you know exactly where it's come from and uh, with absolute minimum of work you get the earthworms to turn it into this brilliant organic uh, liquid and a solid uh, fertiliser that that is perfectly balanced but also has all the other benefits of uh, if you're using it on soil it's uh, improving the structure and the nutrient holding ability of a soil you know the benefits are extraordinary but most importantly I think it, it is something where we can teach kids that uh, you can put carbon back into your, your soil uh, like this and uh, whilst solving uh, all of these other uh, issues of, of uh, this great organic uh, resource yeah. uh, going to landfill. And I think also it's um, often kids that are teaching us these days because, mm-hmm. you know, more and more they're learning about all this at school and, and bringing it home. Mm. Well, we have one of our case studies, actually, at uh, which uh, you helped me with, AB, at Bond Beach Primary School in uh, Melbourne, which is an absolutely fantastic example of, of urban farming where uh, kids have access to a, uh, a bit more area and in school grounds where they can uh, set up a more extensive uh, community vegetable garden and I think uh, this this is one of the uh, fabulous trends that we've seen uh, emerging that uh, people are, are utilising these public spaces, not just schools, but um, yeah, railway uh, lines and uh, you know disused urban uh, public spaces to uh, create community gardens, and so they're not only are people growing their own healthy food, but uh, they're also getting the benefits of community interaction as well. Yeah, absolutely. And now, Angus, you and Simon, you're um, about to start a bit of a publicity tour for the book and uh, 
earlier in the show we mentioned our dinner that we're having at Curly Whiskers on Friday, but I see that on uh, Thursday uh, you and Simon will be um, at readings in St Kilda at 6.30 chatting with Jane Edmondson. And I'm just wondering, are you going to hang around afterwards to you know sign books and have a chat with people? Oh, of course, and uh, it's lovely of Jane to... Uh to come along to that event. It, it's a free event too, by the way, at uh, Kilda on the Thursday. So, uh, yeah, we'd be love to see anyone uh, on either either uh, night. So, yes, I'll, I'll be, uh, we'll be there answering questions until people have uh, stopped throwing them at us. <laughs> Beautiful. It sounds good. <laughs> hey, look, Angus, we really should let you go. So I just want to say thank you so much for um, taking the time to talk to us this morning about the book. Oh, look, thank you for such an insightful uh, panel of, of interviewers. <laughs> Case um, studies are beautiful, by the way, Angus. I've just come across the Bond Beach one. That's really, they're beautiful photos. Yeah, oh, they're my you. photos. Thanks, Carol. Oh, yeah. <laughs> she didn't know that. I didn't actually know that. They, they look beautiful, they are very inspiring. Yeah. Mm. Oh, good. Well, uh, that was uh, part of the objective was to inspire people, but. Uh, most importantly, to, to educate people about all, all that mm. uh, detail of, of growing food in urban spaces. So thank you very much. Good on you, Good Angus. Talk to you later. Bye for now. Cheers. Bye. Bye. That was uh, Angus Stewart talking about his new book, Grow Your Own, How to Be an Urban Farmer, which is retailing now for $45. Um, It's a really lovely book. Um, The publishers, Murdoch Books, have done a fabulous job and there's heaps of practical and inspirational photos and useful charts and tables and whatnot. And uh, Murdoch Books have given us one copy to sell on air with the proceeds going to 3CR. So if you'd like to get your hands on Angus and Simon's book, you can give us a call now on 94190155. It's uh, $45 to pick it up or $55 to have it posted to you. Um, So if you have just tuned in now, you're listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. My name is A.B. Bishop and with me in the studio are Karen Sutherland and Penny Woodward. If you've got a question or just a a garden comment, we'd certainly love to hear from you. So you can call us on that number 94190155 and we will go to Jill in East Brighton. Good morning, Jill. Good morning, A.B. and panel. Um, Yes, I've got a couple of questions for uh, on behalf of friends uh, that I hope you can help me with. Um, one is um, so, um, my neighbour's got a um, a grey fence that's, that she's just put in and she's got about sort of 30 to 40 centimetre wide bed between the fence and the footpath. And her landscape had planted a whole lot of burgundy corder lines against the fence, which is dark. The fence is dark grey. The corder lines are um, lovely burgundy. Um they've burnt already in the sun and it's not even summer yet uh, you know the leaves are getting scalded because uh, mm. it faces northwest this fence uh, you know with the footpath probably reflecting up heat as well so she was wondering if there's anything else that's burgundy and narrow that she could it doesn't have to be hugely tall um, anything from sort of you know 60 centimeters up to, to perhaps a meter and a half um, that she could put along that fence. Have you got any ideas? There's some burgundy tea tree cultivars, but I wouldn't know without referring to what? online resources or going to a retail nursery which ones would be that high. They Usually they're a bit higher. Usually they get to... Are they, are they narrow growing though? Or they're are fairly they... narrow, but they're not as narrow as a cordyline. Nothing's so going to be as narrow as a cordyline. She's only got 30 centimetres. Oh, 30 centimetres. Oh, sorry. Oh, yeah. Oh, gee. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. 
yes, go back to Cordy Lines. Yes, yeah. I thought it's a big ask. But, look, the only uh, thing... I mean, they looked absolutely gorgeous until the mm. sun got at them. I, I wondered about um, some of the dwarf lavenders, how they would look. Dwarf, oh, sorry? Dwarf lavenders. Oh, okay. In that sort of position. I thought you position. wanted some height, sorry, yes. Yeah, yeah, no, you did say you weren't have, worried about the height. But no, it doesn't have to be terribly high because she's putting... Um, Clumping bamboo on the mm. other. It's, a, it's, it's one of those see-through fences, you know, the council yeah. insisted oh, that they've okay. had a pool mm-hmm. put in, but it's a see-through one, and so she's trying to make it a bit more private for the pool. So she'll have the clumping bamboo on the other side of the fence, but she needs just something mm. to soften it at the front, and the burgundy just did look so spectacular against the, uh, the dark grey. Look, um, it worries me that if the cordyline hasn't know, survived, I'm yeah, not sure that anything, anything else will. is going to, because they yeah, should be tougher they're, they're than, than, than tough. almost anything else. So yeah. the, um, the other possibility would be the um, purple penicetum. Penicetum. Penicetum grass. P-E-N-N-I-S-E-T-U-M. But only the purple one, because the... Purple. Well, the you want the purple one anyway. I'll one look that up. Yes, and also, so that's a grass. Yeah, mm. and Berberus um, might mm. you know might fit the yeah. bill there. There's there's mm. a couple of dwarf cultivars there of the, of the, the Berberus. The, with the, the problem that, with it you've got is not only the heat, but if you've got bamboo on the other side, whatever you put in is going to be competing for mm. yeah, moisture with the bamboo and all that not sort of thing. So it's I think it's going to be a bit of trial and error. Mm. And yes. I and I also wonder if. The cordylines, if maybe there might be an issue with the soil, um, because they are so they, tough. they really should have <laughs> yeah. survived what we've had so far without yeah. any problems. Yeah. Yes, yes. I'm um, just wondering if maybe she didn't establish water them or something like well, that. Well, the other, well, no, I don't think that was it because they didn't droop. They just have, and only some of the leaves where you can see the sun's hit most directly has kind oh, of so it's uh, gone sunburned. They've just gone mm. pale and sad looking. You know, mm. not not not. Not brown and crisp, not crisp, right. but but they know. may they may also come back. So I, yes. you know, I wouldn't mm. abandon them too soon. Mm. No, no, she was saying, "Oh, I've spent so much money on them, and then, yeah. you know, am I going to have to throw them all out?" And I said, "No, look, you, at the very worst, you can move them to somewhere else." More, uh, the other thing I was thinking is maybe just succulents and go for something silver rather than purple. Oh, like, the purple aeonium. Yeah, oh, there is purple. Mm. Oh, can you spell that for me, please? Uh, a- a- aeonium. Sorry, can't hear. A a E O N I U M. I U M. And that's a succulent, isn't it? It is. Mm. Yeah, lovely. Okay. That's burgundy. That and probably I thought, yeah, succulents anything. might do better with the competition from the bamboo. <coughs> yeah. Um, mm. Yes. Oh, it's, well, a taller, it's a taller growing one. So it's not a yeah. ground one. Um, oh, excellent. And every now and then you need to sort of cut it off and shove it mm. back into mm. the soil. Yes. Um, I know. Yeah. Yes. Yes, cut a bit off and, and, and start a new plant. Yeah. Okay, yes, well, I might be able to do that for her. She, she says, no, I'm an absolute, she says, I'm not a gardener and she, mm. she hasn't had any experience with it yet. So so she's got an interfering next door neighbour. <laughs> <laughs> the, the other thing I was going to mention about the cordyline is that sometimes plants, not cordyline, but just sometimes plants in, in the nurseries haven't been hardened off, which means, you know, they might have been grown mm. in a yes. really sheltered spot Shade and then house. suddenly put into a more exposed position mm. and, and you do see that and I saw some in some plants that I um, helped a neighbour choose and some of the helleboards 
burnt off completely and others didn't. And they're all together and they're all the same variety, but they must have come from different growers, otherwise it wouldn't have made any sense. So Yes, um, yes, they, yes. You know, so, so not to give up on them just yet, but I did, it did also occur to me that perhaps because, you know, they've had all this concreting and stuff done for the pool, that there might be very, very limey soil there that mm. a lot of, you know, that might, they mightn't be That wouldn't with produce that. pale, well, it would produce intervenal uh, pale, paling. Yes, no, it's I mean. not doing mm. that. And they haven't been in perhaps long enough for that to yeah, show no. up. It was, it's mm. definitely sun damage. Mm. Uh, mm. But mm-hmm. uh, look, that's given me some... Three, three things. Now, the berberus, I've, I've seen purple berberus, but it was very thorny. Um, can you get berberus without thorns? No. <laughs> no, well, it's going to be on the footpath. I think yeah, maybe we'll cross that one off the list. Um, but yes, look, yeah, um, you've given me two good good alternatives there, plus the fact that maybe I was to say, look, hang in there with, with cordelines yeah, to just see if they can get them through the first summer and... Uh, yeah, just apply, you know, both foliage and um, root um, liquid seaweed. Yes, um, some sea salt. Yeah, mm. just try and improve mm. the health of them. Yeah, yes, give them a bit more more yeah. strength. And look, the other question was um, from that, for another friend, which is that um, what is the best time to prune her lemon tree so that it doesn't produce that long, whippy growth as a, as a reaction? Um, she I, heard that there's a time you can do it where it just, you know, <laughs> responds more moderately. Um, I prune my lemon tree any time I feel like it, I have to say. Right. And, and I tend to take the odd branch off here and there rather than do a big prune. So, um, yes. But other people may well do different things. Uh, I think there was an article in the Diggers um, Journal, one of their yeah. newsletters they sent out. Oh, and okay. I, I, I was a member of Diggers. Yes, so um, the only problem is, of course, remembering which journal which you see, which thing. It, might, it was over a year ago, but it's by that citrus expert that's yeah. now put out a yeah. relatively expensive book. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, uh, I'm pretty sure what he said was that after the first flush of fruiting, you then prune all that whippy, you prune heart, prune it all over to yeah. to stop that whippy growth developing and then that forces more fruiting because I remember thinking, oh, that's really clever. I didn't know that. Yeah, because, straight after fruiting. Yeah, because uh, mm, like yeah. Penny, I would be a kind of a pruning all over the place person normally. And it, So, yes, yeah. yeah, so I must yeah. look it up and read it more specifically. Uh, but, yeah. Yeah, the only thing you've got to be a little, little bit careful of if you're doing a, a heavy prune um, in the middle of summer, which is often when... Yes, the new growth up, will is, burn. ...is that you don't mm, burn mm. your new growth and you don't burn your trunk. Because yes. the yes, leaves, very the leaves yes. protect the mm. trunk, so mm. yes, just especially watch with that. The, the rising temperatures. Yeah, mm. yes, mm. yes. I don't suppose she wants to get out there with the whitewash and paint the trunk. No, well, that's, <laughs> that's the, one of the solutions. To I that. know. Yes, <laughs> it's in Europe, but yeah. Look, that's terrific. Thank you so much for all of that. Good on um, you, Jill. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Thank you so Thanks. much. All the best. Okay. Great show. Bye. Bye yeah. for Bye. now. Bye. All right, and let's go to Gloria in Berlin. Good morning, Gloria. Oh, hi, everyone. Um, Penny. Yes. Lavenders. Um, See, lavenders, it has to be Penny. (laughs) Yeah, that's right, exactly. Herb expert. Um, Look, I have a few in the garden. One has just grown enormously tall and I've just let it go. Yeah. Uh, It's up against a west fence. It's fine. Then I've got another in a pot below the pills hoist, so the long tendrils will touch the... Linen as it dries, which is very nice. Mm, lovely. Mm. However, um, I think it was in August, uh, we put in a whole lot, I think 11, along the, and they're those Avon View, the Italian lavender, yep. I think it's the Italian, yep. um, along the north wall. So um, 
you've got floor-to-ceiling windows, there's sort of bedrooms at the back with these at the base. Mm-hmm. And so, I look, I, ha- I watered, of course, when they first went in, and I've been watering, but I, I'm concerned. The others I've never worried about watering. They get just get water mm-hmm. when they get watered. Um, but with these, I'm, I just, I'm a little concerned. I've got, I do have a drip hose along that that line, which I haven't been using, but I'll start to use because yep. I've been watering with a hose. But tell me, watering and lavender. Yep. Oh, just one other thing. Uh, some of them, um, you know how they've got that little butterfly thing at the top? Yep. Uh, some of them have sort of lost that and they're looking, it's just sort of a, a knob. Uh, and I'm wondering if that's a sign that uh, something? Um, yeah, look, you've got a few things there. Karen's mm. just madly writing me a note <laughs> about um, possible rain shadows. Look, <laughs> lavender, like any plant, needs water to establish. Yes. So you, you've you got to be able that. to, you know, get the roots down. And sometimes, you know, that can um, take several months, uh, mm. depending on, on what the weather's doing. And as Karen said, if, if you're on the side of the house where you're not getting the natural water from rainfall, you might have assumed that they were getting wet when it rained when maybe they weren't. If the rain, I do check on that. If the rain was coming mm. from a different direction. The, the main thing with lavenders is, is usually not to overwater them. So you yeah. can actually kill them by, yes. by watering them too much. And and it varies depending on what lavender you're growing too. Okay, so the really big one that you've got growing that you've probably never watered sa- up the fence. sounds a bit like an Avon view. Uh, sorry, it sounds no. A, no, no, sorry, sounds a bit like um, Alardii lavender. It could be, um, which is one of the toughest of the lavenders. And yeah, I love it. I never watered it when I had it growing under a eucalypt. Um, it was amazing the, what it survived. Whereas the Avon views are softer and more mm. tender. Yes. Plants that will need a little bit more water. Um, I, you may also just need a bit of food in the soil. Oh, um, quite okay. often, the soil right next to a house is is mm. is really deprived of nutrients and what we were talking about before. You know, some of the bacteria and the fungi and mm. the stuff that plants need to grow healthily. Yeah, I had the so, petalum and yeah. um, some daylilies in that area before mm. that, and I just. Yeah, look, I, you, you might want to just do a bit of work what, on, on increasing of... the organic matter in the soil. So giving a, giving them a bit of mulch. Um, mm. uh, if you've got compost, compost, put some compost on the top as well. Just just be a bit kind to them. And and just for the moment, make sure that they, they're getting enough water. Because if, if, yeah, if the water's become hydrophobic, it may well be running the off. Mm. Yeah, the mm. soil has become hydrophobic. It mm. may well be running off instead of penetrating the soil so you need to stick your finger in i you know my mm. test of my soil is to stick my finger in and see what it's doing finger further down yeah. and do you ever use uh, fertilizers on um i look it doesn't hurt to give them a little but if you're putting compost on them they're probably getting as much as they need lavenders don't need a huge amount of fertilizer they get sort of sappy growth and don't grow as well um i tend not to give them you know to- total fertilizers um a bit of a water with, with some um, seaweed extract might help them. I, I, oh, actually, I'm glad you mentioned that because I was using, there's a sea salt product that has a wetting agent combination. Mm. Have you come across it? I have. What do you think of that? Um, it's not organic, so I don't use it. 
oh. is is my it's not certified organic. Okay. Um, as far as I know, if you want to use those sorts of products, it's a really good product. But uh, it's not one that I use in my garden because I only use certified organic products. Yeah. So I haven't trialled it, I have to say. Yeah, I use it in the north part of the, Mm. because that's the hottest part. Yeah, you see, I'd be just adding compost. Okay. And, you know, getting, if you want to try and get a bit more um, water saving into the soil, a bit of coir is is sometimes all that you need to add when you add your compost. And, you know, that helps if you can dig in, dig it in around a bit, that will help maintain some water in your soil. Not blood and bone or anything like that. Uh, no, well, mm. no, not really. It's mm. You're looking at increasing the biodiversity and the organic matter in the soil. Okay. Rather than, rather than fertilisers. Right. All right. Terrific. All right. Good luck. Bit of kindness. Thank mm-hmm. you. Thank you all. Yeah, good okay. on you. Thanks, Gloria. Bye for Bye. Bye. And uh, we will go to uh, Pepper in Sydenham. Pepper, we've only got a, a few seconds left, so if you can ask right. a question quickly, Just we'll quickly try and answer to, it. To help Jill out, to help Jill out, uh, ballerina rootstock, crabapple top all the way along, means you could perhaps border it with a, a miniature Artemisia or, or Santolina. Okay, that's a good thought. Uh, whether it would take the intense heat or not, uh, I'm not sure the, with the ballerinas, but it might. No, no, the, the, the smaller rootstock, but yeah. with the crabapple top, which yeah, I've no, got I'm absolutely just, beautiful. Yeah, I just worry about the competition from the bamboo, bamboo behind yeah. and the intense mm. heat, even mm. with a crabapple. Ah. So, mm. uh, but look, it's certainly worth thinking about. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Good on you, Pepper. Oh, well, we're sort of um, almost out of time to um, today. So uh, what are you guys up to for the rest of the afternoon? Planting some more tomatoes. Yeah. <laughs> writing Getting about the tomatoes. Writing. Writing. Right, so that, that's whenever you come in for Pretty the next that's year. That's <laughs> and do you have a deadline for your book? We've got to have it finished by the end of this year. Okay. Okay, very yeah. good. Mm. Yeah. So we've got about another month. Push, mm. push, push. Mm. Mm. All right. Well, um, that is all for now. We have run out of time. So, look, thank you so much to Jan for womaning the phones. <laughs> thanks to Penny and Karen for sharing your knowledge. Um, always good to have you in here. And thanks to you, the listeners, for tuning in to the 3CR Gardening Show. My name is A.B. Bishop, and we'll be here again at the same time next week. So until then, remember thanks, that A.B. although you can <laughs> eat any plant, it's usually best to stick to the edible one. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.